The Sex Agenda podcast may contain references to sexual violence, sexual assault or sexual oppression. Our listeners' well-being is our priority. Please feel free to tune out if you need to. Hello. Hi. And welcome to episode six of The Sex Agenda. So yeah, welcome, welcome. Welcome if you're a new listener. Happy to happy to have you. And to our loyal listeners. What's yes. up? What's, What's up, up, my G? <laughs> Loyalty, lo- you're a loyal babe. We've got a lot of loyal babes <laughs> listening to this podcast. Not going to lie, not going to lie. A lot of loyal babes. <laughs> we hope, kind of. Um, yeah, so what's, what's your week been like? What's been happening um, with you? Yeah, a lot's been happening. So I don't know if our listeners know, but I'm geographically not in the same country as Annabelle at the moment. I don't think I've openly said that on the podcast, but I am currently in Ghana. Annabelle keeps Jealous. asking me when I'm going to come back. She's convinced I'm not coming Please. back, but I obviously I'm coming back. I'm just here for a little while <laughs> of course i'm coming back um until yeah. until we get some freedom in yes here. yes yes they said lockdown and <laughs> you said leave right <laughs> talk to you later oh, jealous <laughs> yeah so i'm here in accra um it's hot as hell i think the the effects of climate change are like really real over here like I see people complaining a lot about the heat um so there's that but apart from that I've been good I've been working I've been doing lots of stuff at my job around the cred report you know the one that claims that institutional racism doesn't exist lol um yeah so that's that's my week really that's what I've been up to what have you been up to tell me about my baby boo quill ah he's so cute <laughs> yeah <laughs> so my little puppy quill um yeah he's cute he's he's a bit more mellow this week he went for his first groom and I feel I like saw. he's like what what happened to me he's they, like where are my cows they, they washed me they blow dried me and like he's he's like I'm gonna be bougie this week now <laughs> and not not nip you because um but honestly what you said about crunchy is so interesting because this week I actually watched the documentary by Ade Ade Pitan mm. um on BBC about um climate change and you know he was going around there's been different communities and you know I've watched a lot of material on climate change and you know organized with climate justice activists and talked about that and obviously it is very important to the work that we do around you know contraception because often people like try to frame it in terms of like let's reduce the amount of people there are particularly like poor and like um, nothing to see yeah you know like people try to talk frame the conversation in that sense but you know some of it was still so shocking to me like he went to pacific islands and he was with some researchers there who were like showing him photographs how so many islands in the Pacific have just like been submerged within the last few years of water, like full islands just disappearing underwater. And, you know, these islands that people would holiday on in terms of like local communities and would like go for a, a, a weekend beach day and fish around and they've just disappeared, right? a lot of these local communities, their way of life has like barely changed Mm. for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. You know, they have a very natural way of life. They, it's sustainable. They live on the river, they fish, they on the river, they eat what they farm. You know what I mean? And they're literally just like, our houses are disappearing. So, you know, I look, 
I I mean, I watched that and I was just like, a lot of this information you, you know already, but like the visual representation right. was was striking because I was kind of like, it was something I just mm-hmm. watched because I hadn't really planned to watch it. I just watched it because it was there. Um, mm-hmm. But then you watch it and you're literally just like, no, this is this is really scary, right? And we get to practice this like cognitive dissonance when you live in a place that is just like not getting flooded and your house isn't disappearing. But like people are genuinely like, when I was a child, I used to go to this island <laughs> and now it's gone. And yeah, I'm not yeah. one to say, you know, I think we can all adapt our individual behaviors and I'm trying to do that more. I'm trying like not to use much fast fashion. Right. Um, I've, you know, really taken yes. recycling to heart. But like, we know it's not about individuals, right? At the end of the day, because there's, <sighs> yeah. it's not about individuals. It's about mass change, right? Um, mm-hmm. And individuals yeah. can't implement that, right? We need better regulation of kind of like farming and deforestation and we Mm -hmm. need these mass changes and yeah it's going to be interesting coming out of lockdown to see whether people do go back to their normal ways of life because people have Mm -hmm. probably been leading kind of more sustainable lives I guess Mm. in lockdown and it's going to be interesting Mm. to see whether people recognize that they don't need to do some of the things that they do and governments also realize that we could be better but anyway I mean no yeah so that's been on my mind thinking governments are gonna are gonna realize and do better I mean (laughs) (laughs) um Look at me being all optimistic. It's this puppy, man. It's giving me this whole new lease of, Aww, lease of he's hope. He's so adorable. I can't wait to meet him in real life. I, w- I will come back for him. I will. You'll come back for him. Yeah, yeah. Bribery. <laughs> but yeah, let's get into let's get into the, the messes. Yeah. The messes that has been happening. Actually, do you know what? This isn't a mess. This is something that's really important that needs to be addressed. So... Obviously, Mm -hmm. loads of people have been discussing recently. So there's been loads of articles around this issue. Um, The AstraZeneca COVID jab, we I think we mentioned a little bit about it last week in terms of the risk of um, causing blood clots and specifically causing cerebral blood clots and rarer blood clots. And people have been really worried about having the vaccine and new advice Mm -hmm. being issued about younger people not having it. And so a lot of people have been asking, well, if we're concerned about, you know, blood clots with AstraZeneca, where they're... The, the risk is a lot lower. Why aren't we concerned about the clots that are caused by combined contraception, mainly oral contraception, yep. right? Um, so this article like is talking about the risk of blood clots with oral combined contraception um, and, you know, comparing that risk and saying the risk is much higher, but then also talks to a range of experts about oral combined contraception and highlights also that, you know, there are other methods of contraception and the risk is quite a lot lower for other people. But as Mm. somebody that does a lot of contraception in my day job, I've felt it's a really necessary thing to address Mm -hmm. um, for a number of reasons. First of all, people are absolutely right to acknowledge that one gets a lot of attention and there's definitely a lack of attention paid to the side effects of contraception that I can't disagree with right context is key though because we also have to acknowledge that 
although combined contraception causes blood clots, so does pregnancy. So the risk of you getting a blood clot in pregnancy mm-hmm. is like five times higher, mm. right? Than if you're not on any contraception and like about, depending on what contraception you use, like two to three times higher than being on combined contraception. Mm-hmm. So most people are trying to avoid that. So it's like all relative, but I definitely think there's a need to have better research on side effects around contraception. Right, right. And I think we can't deny that there is an element of, you know, it it doesn't matter because of the group of people that require contraception or like pregnancy is like the primary issue to avoid mm-hmm. um, and we want to avoid abortion. So you will put up with whatever you need to with contraception. And I'm like, I don't think that's like good enough. I think we do need to, we do need to be better. Yeah, no, I hundred percent. But <laughs> no, 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 babes, babes, you don't need to be better. You're perfect. Don't you worry about no, that. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm perfect. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, hundred percent agree with you. And I think that what happens with social media sometimes is that it's difficult to have a new one's conversation. I feel sometimes it's sort of like either or and things and conversations get polarized right so what I really liked about the article is they obviously started off with the AstraZeneca stuff and saying you know people are making such a huge deal about this thing but we don't make a really huge deal about this thing which a lot of the population have to you know sort of contend with and then obviously it goes on to say but obviously still the risk is minimal and then it goes on to talk about contraceptive access it goes on to talk about different choices and the fact that actually what we need to do is to make sure that those different choices are accessible to as many people as possible and in turn that will reduce the risk of people having to choose just this one that would increase the risk of blood clots so yeah it was an interesting conversation I mean I I had a friend of mine who's a man he dm'd me a tweet of somebody calling that thing out he was like oh what's this I don't understand so then I had to like explain to him and he was like oh wow I had no idea that people with like uteruses had to just put up with this and like keep quiet and move on so I guess on one hand I'm super grateful that somebody had that conversation because I think it made a lot of people who don't use contraception aware yeah no 100% and um we've done you know similar discussion about um news stories before but it is just like a burden that we've been completely conditioned to accept right yeah that you know most of the time it's the person that's at risk of the pregnancy is going to have to take on the contraceptive burden and part with the side effects basically and we have been conditioned to accept that as a society which means that there has been a lag around other methods of contraception that Mm. don't target just the ovaries that are more dependent on like sperm production being produced and also there is a reluctance um for vasectomies to happen all the time you know like that's never really put forward but it also highlights as you rightly said just like people aren't given enough access to contraceptive counseling a lot of people go to their sexual health or most people go to their gps and like they are offered the combined contraceptive pill when they are Mm. you know going to become sexually active or request some contraception and then they just stay on it for years Um, Mm -hmm. and then some people reevaluate which options they want when they get pregnant and that is basically how it how it rolls so it highlighted that like look we always know this people need to be able to 
have this conversation it doesn't need to be in person but like online or feel like they were actually given choices at the start because it definitely builds up a lot of resentment like I you know as a social media fan I sit on social media and I like read these different comments and the vitriol and upset and disgust that people have with like medical professionals who didn't give them clear options at the start is very very present so our next news story um this episode is from refining 29 and it's about a hiv vaccine based on the moderna covid vaccine is getting promising results so this article is talking about vaccination to prevent hiv and they're pretty much using the science that has been developed from creating an the um, COVID vaccine. HIV affects millions of people every year. It's it's an area of work that we are incredibly passionate about, that we do a lot of work around. So preventing, i.e. vaccinating people to prevent um, the acquiring of the HIV virus is a really good thing. And I mean, we've discussed in earlier episodes or maybe even last season there was a a trial in South Africa again around a vaccine that looked very promising so I think it's always good to update the listeners on what the research are around some of these topics that we talk about that impact a lot of people's lives so yeah it's just a really good story and it's good to see that the science and the development of the vaccine in this current pandemic that we're experiencing, you know, all of that work can be put to other uses and to help people. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really reassuring because I think a lot of people have anxieties about how COVID has stopped, you know, work in so many other areas in terms of doctors, researchers um, have been turning their attentions in hospitals and in labs to COVID. So people are really like, okay, you know, what about all this other research was happening? What about all this healthcare? But I guess it's that good bit of hope that also some of the stuff that we've learned from COVID is going to have an impact in other areas. So it's not like we've just been battling COVID and like now we're not going to be able to utilize that information. I think it's like a really small kind of silver lining to this whole thing really and also this week is actually the British Association of Sexual Health and British Association of HIV conference so um, that's going on for the next couple of days although I'm not a HIV doctor I have been listening to a lot of talks around kind of HIV and COVID and you know there is lots of innovative work that has been happening um, and a lot of the doctors actually that have done the most research around COVID came from a HIV background because they have so much knowledge around viruses and like viremia and they're able to like translate that information. And one of the doctors that I worked with that worked very um, much on like the early HIV um, development, you know, through the 80s, he um, now is spending most of his retirement working on COVID wards and COVID research. So it's, you know, incredible to see people transfer that expertise as well there are so many stories coming out of this pandemic and incredible work that people have done that we're not going to find out about for years um 
So yeah, that was that was nice. Um, so another Refinery29 story. We seem to love Refinery29 stories. Um, <laughs> we are um, not I- sponsored by them. <laughs> um, no, no sponsorship. Um, free agents here. Um, but yeah, this one again about COVID-19 vaccination, um, but essentially a story looking at people experiencing unusual period symptoms after getting the vaccine. So um, this has been noted for a few vaccines. So the Pfizer, Biotech, um, the Moderna, the Johnson and Johnson. Um, so people saying that we were getting um, irregular periods or people that were on hormonal contraception. So now postdoctoral researcher has actually started a study examining um, the side effects. It's important to say that obviously now millions of people have had these vaccines um, and there were huge trials on tens of thousands of people before they were they were rolled out. I think, you know, it's completely possible that people's menstrual cycles could be affected by the vaccinations um i've had both my doses of vaccinations i'm also on hormonal contraception and you can get irregular bleeding with most forms of progesterone contraception anyway so it is one of those things that is difficult to to tell but you know stress um hormones um can affect your estrogen levels it can affect it will affect your period so it's completely it's it's an interesting thing to see get researched and as we said very early on i'm literally like we can't have enough srh research right it's that thing that oh if it gives them a bit of bleeding it doesn't really matter like no it's it's kind of important for people to know if they bleed that's all they do you know (laughs) People want to know um and they want to know how long these things might go on for if it affects people's livelihoods sometimes as well yeah i think this is i think this is also a case of where like social media has sort of like sped things up and highlighted something that perhaps if we didn't have social media it would never have been looked into. We'd be waiting a really long time. I mean, all it took was someone to send a tweet out. Again, you know, obviously Twitter, is, it's got a, a like a huge um, user base, basically. You know, there are millions and millions of people on that app and people were able to respond very quickly with their experiences. And somebody who has the capacity to look into this and research it properly has now taken it upon themselves too. And I think that, you know, that fills me with a lot of excitement and a lot of hope as well that issues that are particularly affecting women like you know, or people with uteruses. We were talking earlier about the contraceptive pill, right? And the Twitter and social media has enabled this to happen very quickly. And I'm just really excited to see the results and, and what comes out of it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, yes to all of that. Because at DC, like very much we try to, you know, use social media not just to deliver information, but also help with research that we're doing because absolutely. it's where a lot of people live um their lives and there's been this m- massive disconnect sometimes between like what people are doing to generate information to support kind of like policy or improve services and like what people are saying on social media. So absolutely thank you for bringing this one up so um all our stories are a bit meh in the mess this week this one is just like it will link to our later discussion with our amazing guest but um it's an article that is highlighting 
the process of assault um, and people marrying or being forced to marry their abusers. So it's Guardian article um, and it's called uh, Marry Your Rapist Laws in 20 Countries Which Allow Perpetrators to Escape Justice. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a report from the UNFPA, which is the um, UN's Family Planning Association that does lots of most of their research in SRH and humanitarian work. It highlights a number of countries that have um, laws which allow perpetrators to get off the hook and some of them reinforce trauma um, for their victims. So in Thailand, marriage can be considered a settlement for rape if the perpetrator is over 18 and the victim is over 15. If she consented, um, inverted commas, to the offence and if the court grants permission for marriage so these kind of laws where a victim is forced to marry their rapist or um, if it was in a relationship it's not considered rape are really prolific and you know it just reminds us again how our fight for kind of reproductive justice is like (laughs) just so seriously lagging behind. And I think for context, I went to research as well because I knew that the law in the UK around marital rape didn't change that long ago. And it actually, rape within marriage wasn't considered an offence until 1992. Like that, that is shocking and really it changed through case law just a a single case caused that but that's really recent and I think that also shows how people's ideas around that won't have changed so significantly so there was um in relation to this I also went to look at you know any research about attitudes around it and there was a study done on the violence against women sector which said a third of those over 65 still thought that you couldn't be raped within marriage we are going to get into a discussion later about like some of the cultural things that can also cause these attitudes to be reinforced but I think it's really important to understand that we are still facing massive amounts of misogyny and these things haven't like gone away and that these views and beliefs still need to be to be challenged because even at a lesser level I've definitely noticed when I have discussions with people that although younger generations might concede that you can be raped by your spouse, right? I -hmm. still find attitudes Mm -hmm. where people are like, they don't feel like they can quite say no because their partner wants intercourse. And I'm like, that is coercion. And that is still misogyny and, you know, a form of abuse if you feel like you're being coerced so yeah I'm just like another horrible piece but a reminder that we are far 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 from free I mean it didn't surprise me and I'm sure it didn't surprise you as well Annabelle when you saw the headline you read the piece because I think that's something we know still happens like you were talking about like attitudes Um, persistent but I think what I um, liked about the report is that it didn't just focus on rapists or perpetrators 
um, using marriage as a way to escape justice. So there's a section of the report that focused on bodily autonomy. So the ability to make choices about your body free from violence or coercion, which is what you were just talking about right now. Uh, and it highlighted that nearly half of women, that's 45%, in 57 countries in the world are denied the right to say yes or no to sex with their partner, use contraception or seek health care which, you know, fits into the framework of reproductive justice that we always talk about. So again, I think that we can see this issue as being part of a wider societal issues, being part of a wider framework of reproductive justice. So not only people are causing harm or enacting violence upon, you know, whether women or children, etc. It's also part of a wider society in which certain individuals are not free to make choices about their bodies and about their lives. It is slightly depressing. But then again, I'm like, okay, well, I'm not just taking this news and being like, oh, like I am part of DC and we're, you know, we're doing something that is part of the framework or as part of the work that will go towards addressing this issue not just in the UK but also like globally as well we have a conversation with manager from abuse never becomes us um great great organization about the work that they're doing to address that and I think that you know some of I think that we don't realize sometimes particularly if we are from communities in which you know a large number of people in our community I use that term very loosely um, because we're not in community with everybody who's quote-unquote in our community right Um, wherever country we are any part of the world I think that like the work that we do when we're in the diaspora or somewhere else you know it goes a long way and I think eventually like has an impact and reflects and reverberates in the in the places and the countries where we're from so yeah I'm sure you're also really looking forward to talking to Vanager and hearing Um, more about the work yeah I mean I can't wait to talk to Vanager I just think um, abuse never becomes us and and Ambu's work is just um, incredible so yeah let's let's get into it you're listening to the sex agenda So I'm um, really pleased to have this guest on this episode of the podcast, because I think that this topic that we are about to get to is something that people know about or people even have personal experience. So our guest on today's episode is Vanager Srinivasan, who is the director of Abuse Never Becomes As, that's ANBU um, UK, a charity supporting survivors of childhood sexual abuse in the Tamil community. Vanager has publicly spoken about her own experience supporting her family through a complex past of child sexual abuse, which eventually led to prosecution through the legal framework. This compelled her to share her experience and become a part of a transformative healing process for others at ANBU. Um, Vanager has spent her recent years in international development, designing and establishing projects that empower, protect and save the lives of marginalized communities all over the world. Big up. Um, She has an MA in refugee studies and community development and now works as an independent consultant supporting NGOs with commercial contracting. Welcome to the sex agenda, Vanager. Welcome, welcome. (laughs) Thank you for having me. This is uh, such an amazing platform. I really appreciate 
the conversations you're having. So yeah, delighted to be here. We're matching yeah, hair, just... actually. I've just noticed, blonde. Hey, <laughs> hey. yeah, it suits you both amazingly. Um, there's something about radical women and us wanting to dye our hair. Like, Listen. it's just like the rebel, I think. It's just like, shake things know. up, shake the table, yeah. you know? Definitely. <laughs> screw, screw your expectations. Um, but yeah, we're so pleased to have you and got to know about your work through other members of the collective, Gayathri, who works with us closely on the Rest Sex Gender Project. And yeah, just looking um, through your work, just incredible stuff that you're doing. So really excited to hear about your journey. Um, so AMBU, it is ANBU, right? Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. becomes us. Yeah. Yeah. And um, um it yeah. actually means love. Yeah, so I Sorry. saw that on your some of your material and I thought ah. that's such that's such an amazing thing, what it stands for given the things that you talk about. So yeah, just tell us a little bit about your journey um into working in this sector, what led up to it and what you're doing so far really. Yeah, so I guess um in terms of moving into uh, international development, it wasn't like a, a space I immediately entered, like after uni, um, I went into central government first, but I made a conscious move into international development um, after like a few experiences. It wasn't enough to know the issues, I really wanted to um, embody it and be a part of changing it. So yeah, so then I, I moved into uh, international development. It really uh, made me reflect on what I was doing in central government um, and some of the things that probably were problematic now on reflection. But yeah, I guess I was uh, donning the white mask or whatever, you know, kind of just blending in and uh, and not really thinking about how I was contributing, I guess, to the world. Um, but yeah, after that, it was quite an awakening process. And then Ambu followed um, naturally kind of soon after that. So just in terms of, if you don't mind sharing, like what was your role in kind of international development for some of our listeners that don't really know what that is and what, what were you doing in terms of your government role that led you to what is quite a different space in terms of your work with Ambu? Yeah, I guess it was the opposite side of the spectrum, if you like. So I'm working in... Um, I went to several different departments, so the Foreign Office, the Home Office, and Ministry of Defence as well. Uh, so I guess in some of the, the kind of pivotal experiences, I went to Afghanistan with Ministry of Defence. Um, I did some work there for six months and then came back and worked in the counterterrorism department. So those were really, you can imagine, the kind of Very, very work. different work. Exactly. And very civil service, like bouncing around different <laughs> different departments. Completely, completely. But you get a real flavour about what the work is, you know, that's going on in the background and the voices that aren't being heard. So, yeah, that really was a big motivator for me to move into international development, which is more uh, working in, with the international communities, looking at development and humanitarian work. The work I do is uh, supporting international NGOs on on projects, so supporting the early stages when we're designing projects, um, that kind of thing. For example, I'm, I'm actually currently working on a, a family planning project in DRC, um, so that's looking at working with the ministry to provide family planning and reproductive health services um, 
by kind of strengthening local communities. So it's, it's that kind of work. It's in some ways, yes, it's it's still interacting with post-colonial kind of entities when you think of INGOs and there's a long way to go in terms of dismantling that, breaking that down. But for me, it's been uh, the most kind of inspiring bit of, of this work is working with local partners. So these are kind of people in and in the community that are actually doing a lot of the intervention work um, and how they're, um, they're, they're doing their delivery. The delivery is sensitive and intuitive to local communities. So they're really adapting the way they deliver work to really respond and hear people on the ground. And I think we could use that in the UK. I think even when we work with the UK diaspora, um, taking lessons there would be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, you you raised some really interesting things because obviously I didn't know your whole journey and I don't I, I don't know all your your kind of your your background, but I think it's often different people and I find that very much with our work with DC that there's community organizations and community organizing and then there are people that um work in kind of the governmental spaces and advocate or do work in that area and often there's like a huge disconnect there so like we're I guess really proud of our work at DC that we straddle both spaces Mm. so it's really rare when you get people like you who work at this community level um doing things with Ambu but then you also get to feed into policy and like question things at that higher level but it's incredibly difficult to do because it's like so different areas um, and trying to find the time and it can be frustrating as I'm sure um, (laughs) I'm sure you kind of appreciate um, (laughs) when you're working in community projects and you are talking to people in the government situation and they don't seem to understand (laughs) what's happening on the ground. So, Vanager, um, I think this will be a good opportunity to talk a bit more about Anbu, Abuse Never Becomes Us, um, how you came about starting the organisation and what kind of support it offers survivors of child sexual abuse. Yeah, so uh, my sister experienced childhood sexual abuse in her childhood. Um, She's my older sister. Uh, The perpetrator was our uncle. He stayed in our family home over that time for about 10 years. She decided to report to the police after she had children of her own. And as you can imagine, from that point onwards, it was a huge emotional upheaval for my sister and the whole family. Led to um, a court case and resulted in prosecution um, of the perpetrator. So after all of that, we really wanted to share our experience with others that were in similar situations or that felt alone. Um, So I did a quick search uh, for a a Tamil child sexual abuse organisation or charity, and I I wasn't expecting to find anything, but um, somehow, yeah, one came up and it was based in Canada, um, and it was Ambu in Canada, they were six months into being formed. So I contacted them um, and then one thing led to another and we, we started the UK branch in 2017. And uh, yeah, since then we've had four events and lots of outreach sessions in the community, um, including in temples, parent groups, uh, universities. Um, we've delivered group therapies. This is all before COVID. And we really got some important research in motion to, to really understand the community needs. So it, it's come quite some way. 
Thank you so much for um, sharing your own family story because, you know, it's it can help other people um, open up about these experiences. And they're, from my, my work, I see people that have experienced childhood sexual violence and exploitation. And often the people I see feel like they're carrying a lot of shame it can be really difficult for people to to share their experiences but hearing about you know your sister's um, experience I know will definitely help some listeners particularly when you have that additional layer of um, cultural stigma or, or, or shame that people face when they are part of a migrant community or um, a racially marginalized community and like not wanting to come forward so can you explain a little bit why you know having culturally specific um, groups that address these issues are kind of important and and what it means for you and for others yeah so the Tamil community is really small um, and we often get grouped into kind of wider uh, black and minority ethnic groups or South Asian kind of brackets, which can do us, the Tamil community, a disservice, um, especially considering our recent past as Tamils from Sri Lanka, uh, where we've experienced a 30 year civil war, which ended like, fairly recently and just had a profound impact on the way we live our lives now um, in the diaspora. So we've potentially got many layers of trauma in effect, um, including intergenerational trauma and impact of forced migration. And another really significant barrier, and I think speaks to to your point you mentioned earlier, is is not even having the language to even disclose abuse. Um, So in Tamil, like words around uh, body parts or um, around sex isn't commonly known. So it's even difficult to even make that disclosure to, to family members. Um, so it's even more critical to have this kind of community-focused response. And again, as as you mentioned, that the other factors also apply. So the stigma and shame around talking about sexual abuse, um, fear not, of not being believed, um, abuse being trivialised, and silencing because of family honour or this misconceived belief that it will go away or mean better outcomes for the survivor. But in fact, the opposite is true. Um, so yeah, hoping we can really cut through the noise and, and speak directly to the community in language and terms that they understand to kind of really catalyze uh, that change process. Thank you, um, manager, for sharing that with us. Um, I think that you raised a really important point, Annabelle. You sort of asked manager, and manager, you were talking a bit around sort of the cultural context, for example, especially like groups of people who are originally from somewhere else, living somewhere else in the world. And you know, I experienced you know sexual assault in my community, and I remember you know tr- I found it really hard, especially when we factor in religion for example because this also happened in a religious context I found it it was something that I kept to myself for a very long time and then one day I just sort of broke down and came out with it and I remember having very like sort of little support from anybody apart from my mom actually what was really surprising is that at that time I had a very difficult relationship for my mom but that was a particular moment in my life where she absolutely came through for me and believed me and I guess reflecting on it now it would have been helpful to have an organization maybe 
similar to Anbu, um, around that I could have gone to speak to or, you know, try and process what's happened. But we did all of that through therapy years later and we're we're better now. So, um, yeah. So I wanted to ask, um, what specific support do you offer survivors of child sexual abuse at Anbu? Yeah, first of all, thank you, Eden, for sharing that. That's uh, incredible that you've come this way with with your mother's support as well even that's such a an incredible step I think even for us we've, we've not had many of those unfortunately um scenarios um where you've, you've been embraced and, and supported through this kind of healing process um in terms of AMBU uh, we really look at holistic ways to support survivors so we really want to explore um approaches that align with our sense of community and family and and probably speaks to to your um, maybe your um, experience of them. Um, so our Transitions and Wellbeing project delivers group therapies for um, child and sexual abuse survivors. So this includes talking therapy, therapy, but also um, exploring body work and creativity with yoga and art therapy. And additionally, we'll be launching this new service, which I'm really excited about. It's called Family Mentalization Based Therapy. So this brings together survivor and their support network, which could be their family. Um, in facilitated um, sessions and we'll be exploring how best to support each other during those sessions so that's um, hopefully um, later on this year and another service we're we're launching later on this year is called uh, the ISVA service so the independent sexual abuse advisor Um, so this will be more one-to-one support and we want this person to be really integrated in university groups we've got some um, we've got Ambu Ambassadors which is our university project so the ISVAs will be um, that kind of point of contact, supporting uh, on a one-to-one basis, uh, anything around reporting or interacting with um, with SARCs, the, the sexual abuse referral centres. So really kind of responding to, to sexual violence in the present, if you like. And I've been, exp- I, I've explored some of your resources and um, you're doing really great work. There are some videos on your website about things like disclosure and how to how to engage with that and I really encourage um, our listeners to to go and have a look and explore explore the resources that are available and because often you know as you said you did a quick google search before you know founded the UK branch of Ambu but often I find that um, people start making resources or they're looking for resources and they start making Mm. things and they haven't really done a full search about what's already out there so even if you aren't from the Tamil community and you think that you need to make more culturally um, sensitive resources or you're looking at your community and thinking there's a gap there I think learning from organizations like Ambu is such a important um, step that we can all learn from in terms of how to make services better you raise some really interesting things actually first of all um, ISVAs so it'd be really nice if you could tell us more about what those are. Um, I've recently been working at Sexual Assault Referral Centre and, and and training to do the forensics behind that. And notably, um, and the data shows this, that there are not as many non-white reporters mm. at SARCs. And it would be really nice if you could talk about some of the barriers you think that exist for the Tamil community as well and why you think that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's great to see uh, that you're involved in the SARC process because we do need more people, more representation for sure. In terms of barriers, it's it's probably related to the points I raised earlier in terms of 
um, cultural context uh, in terms of uh, stigma associated with sexual abuse, sexual violence, and also impacting that person. I guess we're so programmed to think about family and family comes first in, in most minority ethnic communities that we, we often sideline our wants or, or needs or what we what kind of support we we need in that situation so sometimes we can prioritize thoughts of the family for instance or impact it might have on the family um especially if it was more widely known that you experienced sexual abuse or sexual violence and especially within the south asian context or tamil context this idea and it it it's still very prominent but this idea of marriageability and, and getting married after an assault or, or violence sexual violence so those could really impact uh, whether someone actually seeks support or even discloses sexual abuse yeah and I definitely think you know there are similar themes that occur across a lot of communities and um Eden mentioned you know being from like a religious background mm. and marital and feeling spoiled or being told that you're you're spoiled is definitely a theme that I I see and I I've heard from people before um could you tell us um a bit about ISVAs and and what they are because a lot of people wouldn't have heard that term before yeah so ISVAs they really play a really important part to support uh survivors so this is uh sexual uh, independent sexual violence advisors so they they work with um, exploring options uh, for the individual, not necessarily reporting via the police or even approaching a SARC, which is a sexual ref- uh, sexual, uh, sexual referral. Um, oh. abuse referral centre. Referral centre. Sorry, thank yeah, you. Yeah, uh, <laughs> But it, it's really providing that one-to-one support and, and it's all very much catered towards that individual, whatever level of support they would need or... Or, or need more information on. Um, so the first kind of 72 hours of a sexual in, uh, violence incident is kind of the most crucial part. Uh, and a lot of advice is about getting that forensic evidence as, as soon as possible, really, or within those 72 hours, uh, regardless of whether you want to report or not. It's always advised to get that kind of evidence stored just in case you change your mind or if you if you feel like reporting in the future, but just so it increases the number of options available to you. Um, so they can help un- um, help you understand like that process and and potentially exploring what reporting would look like for you. Again, there's several options, not just the police either. Um, and it could be also helping individuals uh, with support, looking at other organisations that can provide what that person's looking for, whether that's uh, counselling or exploring other types of um, healing processes. And they can also provide support to the, the wider family, um, especially this can be quite a shock to so many individuals, um, how best to support the survivor, what other support services are available for family members too. Um, and they can help with making referrals to other organisations um, and if you do, if they do choose to report, they can also support during that reporting process. Um, go to court with them, for instance, uh, that kind of thing. So it's very much tailored and and one to one. Thank you um, for explaining a bit more about what that is. Um, so thinking about the people that you work with, the individuals and families that you work with in Anbu, what do you think that needs to be done to improve sex and reproductive health services and education? 
Yeah. Um, so we did a quick poll on Instagram around consent a few months ago to really understand how people learned about consent. Um, and we found a majority of people were not actually taught it at all. That was like the highest answer. And then the next highest was um, learning consent through TV and film. Um, so it really shows the need to be more mindful about where our influences come from. For instance, Tamil TV and film often normalise unhealthy behaviours like minimising rape or, or the impact of rape. Um, um, abusers often marrying victims, there's lots of misogyny, there's thoughts on suicide after a relationship deteriorates. Even like normalising stalking or considering stalking as a sign of love, um, these are all really problematic and gives you an idea about what we're working with. Uh, in terms of improving sex and uh, reproductive services, um, I guess we, we might need to pair it back to the very basics. Uh, for instance, we were talking about child safeguarding with parents and we realised we actually needed to, to do lots of kind of groundwork to tool up parents on how to even talk about sex or even supporting their children in understanding body changes. I mean, that's why we're so we're really, really excited to work with Guide 3, actually, and, and decolonising contraception, because Guide 3 is going to be talking to uh, a parent group about uh, menstruation and puberty and also sexual health and contraception. So this is a, a huge step in um, improving education, which we hope then would improve access to health services. Yeah, and I mean, we're so excited to, um, you know, work with you and have you on the podcast and Guide 3 being able to have the support and the structures to 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 do that work and have an organization like yours that brings people together um because i absolutely agree with you that something that i commonly find is that it's really difficult for people to discuss particularly child um abuse or sexual exploitation mm. when they themselves haven't as you mentioned before had any language to discuss sex at all so the additional mm. you know barriers when it's like abuse and it's a child when even outside of that context you would find it already hard exactly so if you can definitely build up confidence even having those healthy conversations then when something awful happens then hopefully it'll be easier for guardians and parents or I guess that's the expectation right Exactly. Yeah, we're just creating more spaces, more safe spaces and informed spaces. I think there's also some problematic, you know, ideas and concepts out there. So yeah, anything like this that's going to empower communities is is really important. But I totally, you know, um, as Edim's kind of said, relate from things that I've seen um, and experienced during my own kind of like childhood that there are cultural behaviors sometimes that you know it can be really difficult for within a community to kind of challenge um something that I don't know um whether you similarly experienced but you know when young women start developing breasts and like it's really common behavior like in Nigerian culture to like tease people or like pinch them and mm that lack of understanding about body and consent can really, you know, cloud things for some children because that's yes. a non-consensual um, interaction. Some people see that as teasing, right? But then how do you know what's, obviously it's inappropriate teasing anyway, but how does that person know where it's changed from like teasing, joking to 
sexual touching and there definitely needs to be more spaces where we can challenge some of these behaviors and talk about how it can sometimes set people up for long-term issues really so for people that want to support your work um, get more involved with what you do or just open their purse and throw money at you to support all the lovely things you're doing how how do they do that yeah no please do I think um we've got lots um well our instagram handle is ambu.uk uh we've got a just giving page please do kind of support if you like with donations uh but even if you're sharing our support material we've got a facebook page and twitter page which i think is uh our facebook is abuse never becomes us uk and our twitter i think it's ambu uh, underscore uk so please yeah do follow us and share material um, and most importantly it's just to create compassionate spaces for com- uh, conversation for discussion and uh, just so there's more safe spaces um, to really understand each other support each other that would be incredible yeah manager just want to say you guys are doing incredible work particularly at a time where lots of services just like general child exploitation child sexual abuse services are probably experiencing financial hardship because of you know sort of the times that we're in I think it's really important that communities like ours don't get left behind because that's usually what happens right people forget Mm -hmm. that you know certain communities need very specific things or need people who are very familiar with the culture and the dynamics in order to um, continue to support people so I'm really um, inspired by you and I'm super grateful that you and Anbu are doing this work yeah Thank you. Thank you. Just to kind of, I guess, finish up, is there anything we've heard about the the collab with Gayathri at DC, but like, is there anything else that you're working on? You mentioned the ISVAs, but yeah, any any projects that are, that are going to be in the pipeline soon that people should watch out for? Yeah, I guess just adding on to the project I've already mentioned, we, we, we have um, a research symposium that we had to cancel before um, COVID. So hoping to get that back on the kind of agenda for next year, um, early next year. So that will be uh, a research symposium exploring collective and individual approaches to healing from childhood sexual abuse, um, showcasing research from the South Asian diaspora in the UK. But I think that would be really quite interesting and um, keep an eye on our social medias. But just really want to thank you both so much. This has been such an incredible platform and really grateful for your support and warm wishes it's it's things like this that really inspire and and motivate me too so thank you so much oh thank you so much and (laughs) honestly it's an absolute like honestly it's an absolute pleasure I think when I see work like this um especially that that is born out of people's personal oh my goodness I think I'm crying (laughs) Um, let it out let it out we don't suppress emotions on this podcast (laughs) people's personal experiences I honestly um it just it just makes me want to just do more and there's just so many gaps that need Mm. to be filled and I just think you're just doing amazing things for young Tamil people that think they're alone or they've experienced Mm. something alone and they're going to find your organization and they're going to find your work and they're going to feel heard so yeah just keep doing what you're doing girl you've started something now please (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah we're gonna we're gonna pause yeah (laughs)
Ja. This week's growth section, I don't know if I've mentioned on the podcast, but about four or five weeks ago, I decided to go back to therapy um, to start seeing a therapist again, just because I had lots of things in my head and I was just struggling. Um, I don't know if you're aware, I have a very, very tumultuous and difficult relationship with my mother. Um, <laughs> and we all loved it, we all... <laughs> <laughs> we got mommy issues. <laughs> mama issues. <laughs> um, yeah. Funny enough, I get on really well with my dad. I have no daddy issues. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. So I decided to go back to therapy. So I've been seeing a therapist. Um, name is JP for short. I'm not going to say his full name, but he's in America. So I'm not sure if I can find him. But yeah. He might listen to this podcast because I told him about ah, it. Anyway. Oh, baby. My therapist is in the US. Yeah, because I, <laughs> I use an online I use an online app for therapy. It's it's basically private. I pay I pay to use it because it's like it's really good. It's really convenient for me. I do video sessions, audio sessions, all that stuff. I can message them anytime and they respond. Just really um it works for me that way. Yeah. It might be helpful. If you share the link with some of our listeners. Who yeah, might we can put that in, in the in reference. Yeah, yeah we can put that in the Sorry, reference. Sorry, I'll stop yeah. you now. No, no, it's, all, it's okay, darling. It's You know what? I had some really good feedback. I'm going to tell that person to fill the form in, actually. That said that listening to the podcast was literally like they were sat in the room with us and we were just chatting. So don't worry about it. I think people like the style that we have. <laughs> So JP sends me different stuff depending on what we discuss at our weekly sessions. You know, he sends me stuff to like read and look through, et cetera, et cetera. And I was talking to him last week about the fact that I'm turning 28 very soon. Um, and in the last week, I felt the pressure of turning 28 and this thing in my head about I need to achieve things and I need to do things and you know what are you doing what have you got to show for 28 and look at what other people I, I basically went like West African auntie or myself and be like look at what your age mates are doing what do you have to show for 28 is what I was doing to myself um and he basically said to me you know acknowledge that you're doing your best as we know comparison is the thief of joy so run your own race and be kind to yourself when you begin spiraling down the comparison trap. So that's what I wanted to share with everyone today in the grade section. If you're feeling like you're comparing yourself to other people, or if you feel like you're not achieving, you know, um, comparison is the thief of joy, you know, run your own race, be kind to yourself. And yeah, that's what I wanted to share with our listeners this week. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. Um, your experiences with therapy just actually this whole episode for just being so open with myself and the listeners about you know things you've you've experienced and I really relate in terms of being quite fortunate in terms of I stopped comparing myself to people although it is quite human behavior I stopped comparing myself to people though quite early on and I remember I made a conscious decision, probably when I was about 20 or 21, not to buy any what are deemed like women's magazines anymore. Like 
I had just had enough of the narrative inside these certain magazines and I stopped buying them. And I have to be honest, like what it did for my self-confidence and things have changed a lot in the last kind of over the last 10 years, obviously now we have like Instagram and like most people don't even really buy paper magazines. They read all their articles online. And all Mm -hmm. I can say is that like, it's so difficult to do, but disengaging from that comparison and that bubble, you will notice an instant shift in your mentality and your mental well-being and health because you are freeing yourself of expectations you know that other people right have for themselves and have of you and you are literally the only things that you are putting on yourself or what you innately want you know and as much as that's possible because you know you Mm. still will look at your friends and you'll you know see things on the day-to-day but yeah man I just think it's such an important quote and the older I get (laughs) the more I reflect on you know being a teenager then being like younger and like in my 20s and be grateful for even if there is like, doesn't feel like there's, you know, material progress, because those are the things that we're really taught to to value, right? Like getting a better job, getting like a house, like even if those things don't progress for you, I really value the self-progress, right? And mm. that's stuff mm-hmm. that some people get earlier than others, but you are just happier when you just like, learn to disengage from like the expectations and people's opinions of you like and that's part of I think increasingly you come to appreciate of being young Mm. a lot of teenagers are very bound up in what their friends and their peers think of them and it's literally like the source of a lot of their unhappiness And if you can get older and progress away from that, I don't know, man, I just think people will feel like a lot happier and a lot more liberated, but it's difficult to do. I'm not saying it's easier, easy at all, but- um, Oh no, it's something you have to work on. Yeah, setting those kind of challenges for yourself rather than like the expectation of like getting a physical thing can actually make you reach the goal Mm. of getting that physical thing (laughs) faster right (laughs) like I don't know I'll give a really I'll give like a really rapid example but often I see these days that people really want to respond to topical things on social media we're all guilty of it right it can take people loads of time it can take people hours going back and forth getting into conversations about things on social media right but all the time that you spend doing those things is literally detracting you from doing like actual meaningful work and interactions in other areas of your like life right mm-hmm. um, and it's something I'm so guilty of yeah. but the more I try to implement that the more I actually get stuff that I can be proud of done like mm-hmm. a link and a retweet is like instant gratification but it really doesn't do a whole <laughs> lot for people <laughs> in, in the long run yeah no you're right I definitely agree so yeah, we come to the end. It's the end of the road. 
on this episode. It's anyway, the end of the road. Anyway, I'm not going to do that because that was horrible. But um, please fill out um, our podcast survey. The link is in the description. Yeah. It's also on our website. Um, we really need your feedback and good or bad we really honestly do want to hear from you about topics that you would also like us to discuss please don't Mm -hmm. um, criticize my singing because I'm really sensitive (laughs) all right thank you everyone (laughs) take care see you on the next episode